and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. Today, Mark Schindler is here, and we are going to break down the Pascal Siakam trade that occurred overnight again. I keep waking up with these deals that happened. This one at least occurred at like 6.30 a.m. my time. I looked. I saw a message from a source league-wide, let's call it, uh, and he said, there it is on the Siakam. And I was like, okay, so that must be the Siakam deal got done. Looked at Twitter. There we are. Pascal Siakam goes from the Toronto Raptors to the Indiana Pacers for Bruce Brown, Jordan Wara, Kyra Lewis, three first round picks coming from the Indiana Pacers. Two of those picks are the Indiana Pacers own this season and in 2026. The 2026 pick is top four protected. The other pick is also a 2024 pick. It will essentially be the worst selection of the Clippers or Thunder this season, depending on who finishes lower in the standing. So you're looking at something like the 25th, the let's call it 28th pick in the 2024 NBA draft to break it all down. Mark Schindler is here. Mark, what's going on, man? Uh, I mean a lot as a, I guess you could call me a, not, not really a fan. I'm maybe I'm winning back into fandom, but the, in, you know, as somebody who grew up as an Indiana Pacers fan, I am ecstatic, man. This is so dope because I don't know. I mean, obviously we'll get into it, but um, the Pacers just kind of historically were never a team that that made these kind of big swing trades. It was always the let's go, you know, find like, okay, we'll we'll trade a late first for Thad Young because he's somebody who can round out our core. Or, you know, we'll go and try and find somebody who we think if if we get them healthy and, and, and consistent like a TJ Warren, they become more valuable playing for us than elsewhere. So like – to see this team like really swing on what some could consider a pretty risky move is uh I don't know it's just very cool to watch as somebody who you know grew up as as a Pacers fan. Yeah, this is a full scale buy deal. This is them going in and saying, "Hey, we really love our core. We really love our young core that we're not going to move in a Pascal Siakam deal." That was one of the most interesting pieces of this trade for me in my opinion at least. Yeah. Is the fact that none of Jarris Walker Ben Matherin or Andrew Nemhard are a piece of this trade. It feels like to me, the Pacers love what they have. They love their roster. They love their team and that they wanted to buy and go all in on this season. And I love this trade for them. We actually did a podcast over the summer talking about the Pascal Siakam trade market when it looked like he might get traded over the course of the summer. And I think you and I both thought that Siakam was an unbelievable fit in Indiana. And then throughout the course of the season, I've also continued to say that I think Indiana makes the absolute most sense as they've gotten better and better and made their run in the in-season tournament, everything like that. I've just felt like Siakam made even more sense for them as the year went on. I love the basketball fit for Siakam. I think it just makes an immense amount of sense. I think that the price point here is probably about right. I know that that won't sit well with some Raptors fans, but they kind of got backed into a corner for reasons that maybe we'll discuss here momentarily. But I kind of want to keep it on the Pacers here for a second because I think that this is such a important deal for them moving forward. Siakam is eligible to sign a two-year $81 million extension. I frankly can't imagine that he's going to sign that just because 
if you look around the marketplace and what it could be in the off season, I cannot imagine Siakam not getting a four year extension at this point or a four year contract at this point, just because there's not a lot out there. He's going to get a max from somebody. So you almost certainly wait if you're Siakam to do something there. But if I'm Indiana, I feel like I have literally the perfect basketball ecosystem to be able to allow Pascal Siakam to thrive in. And I'm willing to bet on playing next to a guy like Tyrese Halliburton, who we know is going to get Siakam touches in the exact spots that he wants touches playing in arguably the most well-spaced offense in the league, playing in a dynamic transition offense is probably the exact ecosystem that you would love to see if you are Pascal Siakam looking for a new environment to play basketball in. So if I'm Indiana, I feel great about betting on myself with this Siakam deal and saying, we're going to be able to retain this guy and we're going to be willing to give up the assets to get him, even if there is a risk factor here. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that I'd hit on, on on it. For, like first, exactly like you're saying, I think um, so much of this year has been kind of trial by committee in the front court for the Pacers, which to be fair, like it has worked. I think a lot of that is due to the system. And, I, you know, when you you pull apart how this team has played against the top teams in the league, I think you see some of the uh, the drawbacks with all the options that they have in the front court outside Miles Turner. And I think to me, because one of the questions we got, you know, opening this up was, you know, there's a log jam in the front court. So what does that mean? To me, it's this is them making this move is, is showing like you, you don't have a lot of faith in that group um, at the highest levels. And that's why you go out and you get somebody like Pascal, who you can have questions about his shot, which I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, what that means moving forward. But I think, OK, you can Jalen Smith is a sh- he, he shoots, but he doesn't get defended like it. Obi Toppin will shoot. He doesn't get defended like it. And Pascal doesn't have the same issues on the other end that those two do. While also bringing more for you offensively. So I think to me, it's just, when, especially when you talk about the price point, it's pretty no-brainer for me. Um, I really love how this has turned out. And then I think the other thing that, we don't have to talk about this now, but what, what is most intriguing to me is, you know, I think a lot of people look at this as, oh, well, they haven't been playing Jairus that much and and this and that. And I think, I don't know, the, the more that I have, uh, you know, been in this, looking at things uh, topically with respect to, to player development, like I think it's okay to have guys who come in yeah. and are playing over lottery picks. Like unless you are a guy who comes in and is an immediate home run, uh, like it's just very unrealistic to, especially with the way that the plan has started to um, redirect how teams approach things um, and, and how that's played out in parity. I just think it's a lot harder for coaching staffs to buy in to play a guy who's not quote unquote ready all the time. So I think for me, this is about Jarris is going to be a depth guy at the beginning. And then as he keeps developing, we'll see how that plays out. But I think for me, like, again, this, this is all about them taking the next step and continuing to build. And it's easy to forget, like, you know, I think so, so often we look myopically at like, well, you know, you have this much team control, like Tyrese Halberton is there for five years. 
yeah, but you have to make him happy every single year. I'm not saying that, you know, yep. you quote unquote, like this is all about like, oh, well, you know, he runs the franchise or something like that. But it's like, OK, well, yes, you have a long term vision in view, but you have to build on that now. It can't just be um, that long sighted. Like you have to you have to be able to 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 have steady enough growth here. Um, to have people bought in and continuing to doing that moving forward. So that's a long-winded answer, but I, that, that was all the immediate stuff that I thought of right when I got into this. Yeah, and Jairus Walker, for reference, in the G League this year, averaging 24.2 points, five rebounds, 3.3 assists versus 2.7 turnovers, shooting 51% from the field, 44% from three on seven three-point attempts per game, by the way. Uh, shout out Jairus Walker. He's working on that jumper. And here's the thing. If Jairus Walker can shoot, and I don't think he can shoot yet uh, on an NBA court against NBA defenders closing out on him, making him speed things up. But if he can shoot in two years, you can play Jairus Walker and Pascal Siakam together. And then you have the makings of an incredible defense next to Tyrese Halliburton, which might be what you need long term in order to make him as successful as humanly possible. Like if you can get Jairus Walker, Pascal Siakam, Miles Turner all on the court together, and if you can mix and match two of those three almost at all times on the court, it significantly upgrades your defensive upside, which is what you need to make this work around Tyrese Halliburton long term. So I love that idea of this deal. I love the fact that they kept those guys. I think that it's so much smarter for them to move two first-round picks in a 2024 draft that I have an enormous amount of questions about, as well as a 2026 pick that they maintain top four value on in case of disaster as a team like Memphis is learning. Uh, you never know what's going to happen with injuries, obviously, in any season. Keeping that is a real value. We'll see, you know, what the rest of it looks like for the Pacers. But in terms of just purely the basketball fit for Ty for Pascal Siakam here, I just want to rattle off some stats in terms of what really matters here for Siakam. Pascal Siakam is one of, let's call him, the best drivers, best mid-post players, uh, best rim pressure guys in the NBA scoring around the basket. You would agree with that, Mark? 100%. Uh, he, he is absolutely, utterly elite at it, in my opinion. If you look at the run of games he was on, basically from the start of December onward, he was averaging 25 points, five rebounds, five assists, shooting 58% from the field. He was actually shooting pretty well from three for an extended period of time for the first time, actually in quite a long time. Uh, in his recent career and making 76% of his six free throw attempts per game. I think everybody thinks of Indiana as this run and shoot transition only attack. Yeah, they definitely do a lot of that transition is going to be an enormous part of what makes Pascal Siakam a success in Indiana. He is a monster out on the break. He is absolutely able to sprint he plays with an exceptional motor he is very fast he covers ground quickly Tyrese Halliburton is going to be looking for him constantly on runouts on trailer situations where he can dive to the rim once the defense is bent 
it's going to work incredibly well out on the break. But more importantly, in the half court, I think it's going to work exceptionally well. The Pacers score 45.5% of their points in the paint. That's actually top 10 in the league. Again, not a team that is just some like, hey, let's spread them out and shoot threes team, like I think has been displayed a little bit occasionally. Uh, they actually lead the NBA in points in the paint per game. They are third in the NBA in drives per game, in part because of how well they space the court, because of how well they keep things uh you keep driving lanes open. They're capable of getting that kind of penetration. They're third in the NBA in points off of drives. This fits really well with Siakam's skill set. They're going to open things up for Siakam. They're going to have four shooters around him, and they're going to say, just go. Like You're going to be able to create half-court offense in a real substantial way. Uh, I love all of that. The transition numbers, You know, they're third in points per game off of turnovers. Uh, according to Synergy, they're the third they uh, are the team that has the third highest percentage of their possessions in transition, and they are tied for the most points per per game in transition. They are top 10 in field goal percentage in transition. They're top nine in effective field goal percentage in transition. I think that all of this is tailor-made for what makes Siakam what he is. It, this, is this is one of the best fits in terms of a trade, matching a guy's skill set with his new team that I can remember in a long, long time. This just makes an immense amount of like sense to me. Yeah, I love what you hit on with Indiana because I think um, they've just gotten kind of billed as a jump shooting team, which obviously is a big part of it. But they're like you mentioned, I mean, they're fifth in rim rate in the league. A lot of it's them being a driving and offensive continuity team is what I look at. Um, yeah. So I think in, in a lot of ways to me, like I think it's almost um, not to like get overly philosophical with it, but it's kind of like taking what the Utah Jazz did and adding in a lot more motion with it and trying to be even more creative with it. Um, and I think when you take Pascal, part of what I'm most interested in, I think when this team has had its biggest struggles is when things do bog down because they don't necessarily have somebody who is um, adept at creating in that mid post elbow area when it's, most difficult to so I think when you take this like obviously Tyrese has grown quite a bit in that way I think that's still a big um a big area that he's going to keep growing into over this next contract but like you add Pascal as a guy who can who can be that dude in stretches and in moments I think that's just so enticing to me um I'm really excited to see how Rick blends that all together because one of the other things that's like kind of sneaky about this like Rick is tremendous at coaching guys like this. Like, I think, like, obviously they are not the same player, but, like, I think about all the things he used to do with Josh Howard when he was in Dallas. Like, you can go all the way down the line of all the funky forwards that, that he's had um, well, like, and made even, successful. Like, another guy that fits this weirdly, and I'm not saying that Pascal is anywhere near as good this guy as good as this guy was, but, like, finding ways to create space in the mid-post, in the mid-range for guys like Pascal Siakam – is exactly what Rick Carlisle did with Dirk Nowitzki back in the day. Mm -hmm. Obviously, very different players. They go about their game in different ways. But as a coach, what you're trying to set up in terms of spacing around that guy in the mid post at times or, you know, in that like 18 foot mid range area, you know, Pascal, you know, trying to drive. Sometimes he's going to spin. Sometimes he's going to, you know, just blow by a guy and get to the basket. 
the spacing principles aren't that different. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, definitely. I think especially when you're talking about how they kind of uh, operate in the same places, that totally makes sense to me. Um, I think part of what's going to be really interesting, too, is like how they try and utilize this playmaking, because this hasn't been a group that is uh, necessarily looking to do a lot out of, you know, playmaking from their bigs, from the elbows and whatnot. And I do think like I would love to see them try and get some of that out of Pascal. Obviously, a lot of his stuff comes out of drives and, and creating from there. But um, just going to be interesting to see how they how they maybe try and cater some some wrinkles in for that. Yeah, how they get him touches there. And also, I'm going to be really interested to see how it evolves with him and Miles Turner, you know, necessarily who's going to screen, you know, how often are they setting double drags where Turner's going to pop and then Siakam's going to roll to the rim. Uh, how creative can Rick Carlisle get with those two? I think he can obviously get quite creative with those Very. two. Uh Miles has really, I think, improved as a ball handler, at least. I don't know that the passing has ever gotten to a level where I'm like, oh, yeah, like he's going to be able to make these like incredible short roll reads. But he's at least like comfortable enough putting the ball on the deck now to at least stop and like reset or, you know, maybe even get to the basket to where that's valuable in terms of being able to create a pick and roll attack that is versatile and multiple with Siakam like you can have Siakam spacing on the weak side with Turner setting a screen where Turner's going to pick and pop you know maybe the defender you know the drop defender stays with Halliburton a little bit too long you kick it to Turner uh, maybe the they decide to switch the action right and you have to Halliburton beats the big somehow so the help has to come and you have Siakam in the corner so Siakam is there and he's willing to cut as soon as his man ends up going to help onto Halliburton. There are just a lot of different ways, I think, to set up this offense. And that's before we even get to potential like Halliburton Siakam ball screen attacks yeah. where you can throw Turner in the corner and then you have shooters around them. You know, you can throw Buddy Heald out there. You can throw Matherin out there. You can throw Naismith out there. You can throw all of these different wings out there that are very, very good shooters that teams have to stay attached to. And it becomes really fucking hard to guard these guys. Like, if you have Siakam rolling to the rim, short rolling, maybe popping, he can do all of that stuff because he's so capable with the ball in his hands. It's just going to make Halliburton even more lethal, I think. Yeah, and kind of like you're hitting on too, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what what does or doesn't happen with Buddy Heald because I know there have obviously been rumblings about that um, and you know him wanting to have a larger role and what that could look like. But I just think about like how lethal um, you know, Fred Van Vliet screening for Pascal could be and recreating some of that stuff with Buddy, but in a much better spaced remainder of the starting five like that to me that's yeah. like I mean you think about all the things that Pascal did um as a driver and creator in Toronto and then factor in that he was still operating with some of the worst I, I said worst is maybe the improper way to say it because they've done good things offensively but like some of the most cramped spacing in the NBA over the last half decade since the since the championship so like Obviously, you can still do good things with interior playmaking and whatnot. But when you're talking about somebody who is creating downhill that operates best from the mid-range and 
Um, and you talk about the spacing is going to be now, like that's just, he's never really had that kind of spacing to the degree he's going to see it in, in Indiana. I'm glad you bring that up, Mark, because I grabbed an example of that to kind of showcase for people what exactly Siakam was dealing with in Toronto in terms of spacing. So you look at this play here. This is Siakam, you know, gets a touch in the mid post, right? He has Max Christie on him. I believe is that Dennis up in the corner upper in the wing there around yeah, the crypto sign. Looks like Dennis on the wing. Anthony Davis is switched on to Dennis, but because Dennis is not a guy that teams are worried about shooting, Anthony Davis is just like all the way cramped into the paint already. Uh you have a help man coming down here as well. You have Max Christie guarding uh Siakam here. You have can't tell who that is. Is that LeBron guarding Gary Trent? Wouldn't really make sense rotationally for them. Uh, no, no that's D'Angelo. Yeah, sorry, couldn't tell by the hair. Oh, you're good. Um, so you have D'Angelo Russell has one foot in the paint. Anthony Davis has one foot in the paint. Rui has one foot in the paint because he's guarding Scotty Barnes in the corner. And then you have your primary defender here. So you have three help defenders already with one foot in the paint because they know that Siakam is trying to drive here. That's the whole end goal. So you're going to see the drive. D'Lo kind of like gives like a soft dig, but not really. Like he kind of stunts it more than anything and then kind of goes for a swipe. Rui comes all the way in to help. He is at the basket. He is going to try and contest this here. Siakam gets the kick out. But it's to Scotty Barnes and like, God loves Scotty Barnes. He's been great. But like, this is the kind of difficulty spacing that you see a little bit too often in Toronto. In Indiana, because, you know, guys like Aaron Naismith, because guys like Buddy Heald, like if that's Buddy Heald instead of, you know, let's let's call it Dennis Schroeder. If that's Tyrese Halliburton instead of Gary Trent Jr., both of whom are, I don't know, two of the 20 best shooters in the league at the very least, if not two of the 10 best shooters in the league. D'Angelo Russell has to be attached on the wing. Anthony Davis has to be attached on the wing here. You can't leave those guys at all. You might have, you know, instead of Scotty Barnes, you'd have maybe Miles Turner in the corner there. Miles's guy might help off, but you're not getting those two guys at the elbows sagging in which is the critical thing. And that's going to allow Siakam to have a much easier time, in my opinion, getting downhill Mm -hmm. in circumstances like this. It's going to make life just so much easier, I think, for Siakam to score and have an enjoyable basketball experience offensively. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, because like, you know, people could look at a nitpick and be like, well, the spacing, you know, every team's going to have possessions like that. But to me, it's more about the pace that the team plays within the half court because the Raptors, even when they've had decentish spacing, like they still play generally kind of slower in the half court. And to be fair, like that's one of the things that I will be interested to see because not like I would never say that that Pascal is like a guy who is a ball stopper, but he definitely likes to probe more. Like he's not necessarily a, a quick rip and go kind of person. Like he likes yeah. to he likes to set up. He likes to go. But I think, again, like when you talk about what that's going to look like, it's going to be about blending the two things together. I don't think it's about like necessarily just like fully doing it the quote unquote pacer way or whatever. Um, 
So I'm going to be really interested to see what that looks like, but I totally agree on the spacing difference. And um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fascinating stuff to think about. So another piece worth discussing here for the Pacers, and that's where we're going to talk about the Raptors here in a minute. Uh, Losing Bruce Brown, like is a factor. I think what have you thought of Bruce Brown this season with the Pacers and his impact there? Uh, I think he's been solid. Like he's been uh, important for them as a guy who they can throw on multiple players defensively. I will say like, I don't think he's been amazing defensively this year. Like I, not that he's been bad. Like again, like you're talking about a guy who's been solid, but he's six foot four and often gets overtaxed with having to guard guys who are way bigger. And um, so I think inherently there are just some difficulties with that. I've loved what he's done offensively with the group. Like again, when you talk about a team that is primarily running three, sometimes four guard lineups, um, having a guy like him who can really do a lot of different things and do them at a level that meets a lot of thresholds, like that's important. I think like the decision-making has been good. Obviously the shot's been a little bit up and down, but when you talk about somebody who can just be an effective play finisher, that's that's huge with everything he brings. But I think, you know, you just talk about, okay, well now we have Pascal Siakam who's bigger, longer, stronger, better um, in the Bruce Brown role for us but he's going to do more things and it's going to be a little bit different. Like, obviously I do think it hurts to, to lose him. And I think, um, you know, I saw some comments about like, Oh, well, you know, it just it feels weird to trade him in like the first year of his deal. I think this was always on the table. Like this team did not have a yeah. lot in terms of movable salaries. And I think a large part of signing Bruce to that deal, like obviously like you want to be cool with his agent and be like, Hey, you know, we are offering your guy a big salary because we have the money to do it. We think he's going to be an impactful player in, on our team and he's going to look good for us. And then you can get him to a new place, see what it looks like. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, like it definitely like I would love to have Bruce and Pascal on my team. But when you talk about, okay, if, if when you're like when you're looking at having one or the other or, uh, you know, what the roles are, I think for me, it's awesome. Like I I'm in for it. I'm going to like I, I will probably talk about Bruce with the Raptors later. But um, yeah, I that's that's where I'd be at on it. How about you? I think Bruce started the season really, really well for the Pacers. Like he was knocking down shots a little bit more consistently. It felt like, and then that yeah. turned, uh, defensively again, like wasn't quite like the menace that like he can often be like the disruptor that I feel like he can often be. I don't think he was bad on defense necessarily. I think that, you know, the Pacers obviously just had like structural limitations in terms of size. A lot of the time out there, uh, size speed combination. It felt like a lot of the time. So, it was often hard, I think, for him to maybe be as disruptive as what he can be. But I generally agree with you that I don't think he's been quite as good as he was, like, say, in Denver last year defensively. And yeah, like, look, when you sign a deal like this where it is a one-year deal for essentially what is a balloon payment, right? Like, Bruce Brown, God love him. Like, great basketball player fantastic like useful player just had an awesome season with denver nuggets bruce brown is not quite like a 22 million dollar a year player he's a good Mm -hmm. player like he's a player that's worth probably a little bit more than the mid-level but you sign him to this big number knowing that like hey this is more than what he would get on the market you also sign this deal that's exceptionally you know friendly from a team perspective in the second year and that it has a team option I think that 
that kind of stuff comes with an understanding that there is like a potential that a trade could come down the road. Uh, even, you know, three months after you start playing with the team. So that's not, that's not surprising to me. Like I, I was never, I wouldn't say that like, I thought that a Bruce Brown trade was coming, but I never ruled it out, I guess is kind of what I would say just based on him being there for a year. I don't know that I saw him as a bigger trade candidate than like buddy healed from a salary matching perspective, but structurally the reason that you do it this way is so that you don't have to include guys like, you know, Nemhard, Walker, Matherin, Obi Toppin, Jalen Smith, right. Who it seems like, the Pacers would prefer to keep based off of the way they structured this deal by doing Bruce Brown. Uh, what was his Bruce Brown, Jordan Wara, and then roping in the Pelicans and having them uh, reroute Kyra Lewis up to Toronto. That's how you kind of make it work around that a little bit easier uh, structurally from a financial perspective within the trade. Uh it, it makes more sense doing that because like it, if it was buddy healed, I believe the trade does not work as like buddy healed, Jordan Wara, Kyra Lewis for Pascal. It does work with Bruce's slightly bigger salary that mm. that's to get into like the mechanics of why I think that this was Brown versus uh buddy healed. Okay. We've talked for 30 minutes about the Pacers. Now we're on to the Raptors. The Raptors are, in an utterly fascinating position now. Let's start with this. Did you feel like they got enough for Pascal Siakam uh, in this trade where they get three first round picks? Again, uh, I'll note what those picks are. Indiana's 2024 first round pick, which is you know probably going to end up something 15 to 22, let's call it. The worst pick in 2024 of Oklahoma City or the Clippers, which will probably end up 25 to 28, something like that. And then they also get the Pacers 2026 first round pick in addition to Bruce Brown, Kyra Lewis, uh, and Jordan War. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know me. I always look at things a little bit more optimistically. Um and I always try and be fair with it. But to me, like, I, I do think this is a failure from the Raptors. Um, and I, I think I don't mean that lightly. Uh, like, I don't think yes. I've ever heard you directly call something a failure. So I am fascinated by this response right now. Yeah. I think with respect to this, uh, this actual, like, where it is in the moment, yeah, I think, like you said at the beginning, I think it's right value. But I think that's kind of the problem that they let it get to this moment. Um, yeah. Like respectfully, we've been talking about this show uh, on the show for almost two years now about how it's probably time to just really shake things up and make things different. And like, can can you make the case like, oh, well, having Pascal there was big for Scotty's development. I'm I, I'm sure that Pascal had a positive impact on Scotty developmentally. But when you talk about sheer asset value and the way that this team has operated. Like I think Messiah is one of the great executives in the league. I'm not trying to diminish that, but I do think that he, he has not done a good job with what this, this trade ended up being and what they end up getting back because these picks are not good with respect to what it should be. I, I mean, like if you talk about what this is two years ago um, 
and I don't mean to make it all hypothetical and retrospective, but it's hard not to when you look at, I mean, like there have been, we've been hearing about Pascal Siakam trade rumors um, since it feels like just after the bubble season. So like, it's just from that perspective, I do think it is hard to look at this extremely positively. Um, yeah. I think you can look at it as maybe they're able to flip Bruce Brown and, and make some other stuff shake with that. But again, like, I don't think that, Bruce is necessarily netting you some giant positive back. I think, okay, you get a flyer back in Kira Lewis, which I think is interesting. I would love to see what he can look like in a new setting. I know that's been reported on for a minute that he was going to be out of New Orleans by the trade deadline because they just didn't have room to play him. Um, But again, overall, like they're not getting back some super exciting prospect. They're not getting back even a a more project type player that is going to take time to develop. It's just... It looks sexier because it's first round picks and people can look at it and say, look, we have three first round picks. But in reality, what these three first round picks might end up looking like in the next two or three years. I do think that this is a pretty big um, mistake that it has taken this long to get done. I think that what this is, is I think you're 100 percent right. And it's kind of how I feel about the deal as well. It's just that endings are hard. Yeah. Right? Endings are hard. Uh, this is really, I mean, look, like all due respect to Chris Boucher, who is still on the Raptors roster and was on the 2019 title team. This is really kind of the end of the road for that 2019 title team. They are now fully into a new era. You look at who the guys were on that team. Kawhi Leonard, you know, left immediately, now plays for the Clippers. Kyle Lowry left, uh, what, two years later, now plays for the Miami Heat. Siakam is now a member of the Indiana Pacers. Danny Green is retired. Uh, Fred Van Vliet now plays for the Houston Rockets. Serge Ibaka is retired. Marc Gasol is retired. OG Ananobi now plays for the Knicks. Jeremy Lin, I don't believe, is retired. Uh, I don't want to misspeak on where he's playing. I'm not totally sure. Jonas Valanciunas now play. It was moved uh, midseason, if I remember correctly, that year. Uh, he you know, now plays for the Pelicans. Norman Powell now plays for uh, the L.A. Clippers. So the the bones of what that team was are now all gone. And I think that the Raptors held on to the bones of that team, which is the best in franchise history and their NBA title team and a team that that fan base like really connected with. And obviously so for so many reasons, uh, there was so much reason to have a lot of love and affection for that team. I think that the Raptors front office probably felt similarly and let it get too far down the road in terms of what the value is. If we're speaking, you know, outside of a vacuum here, or if we're speaking in a vacuum, I'm sorry. I think this is more than I expected them to get for Siakam. If you told me yesterday that they were trading Siakam to the Pacers. I don't think I quite expected three first round picks plus Bruce Brown, who I think they're going to be able to reroute for another first round pick if they really would want to. I, I don't know what their plans are with Bruce Brown. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute, but like, if you tell me that like you get the equivalent of basically four first round picks for a guy that expires on June 30th, I, I would not have bought that. Like I, I, that would have surprised me. 
But a the pick value matters. These are not great picks uh, for reasons we'll discuss momentarily. Maybe when we dive into this a little bit more. But also how you got here matters. If you had moved Siakam in the summer, I really find it hard to believe that you wouldn't have gotten something better. Yeah. Uh, If you had moved him last deadline, which I thought was like a real conversation worth having, I think you would have gotten something like very real from somebody. And it just speaks to, I think missed opportunities maybe by this Raptors front office in potentially retooling on the fly. And we're seeing Golden State go through it to some extent right now as well. Uh, Golden State is trying to figure out, do we hang on to the past or do we pivot into the future? Golden State obviously has won you know numerous more titles than the Raptors, and I think there's probably a little bit more reason to hang on there. But they're going through an iteration of this in some way where oftentimes it's better to be early than to be late on these things. If you're early on these things... You don't lose Fred Van Vliet for literally nothing. Mm-hmm. If you're early, you get a better return for Pascal Siakam. I don't think any of us really thought the Raptors had a significant chance to win the title or to even really make like a serious playoff run in each of last season and this season. Just the reality of the situation, especially by the deadline last year. And I think that making that mental pivot toward we would rather be early than be late on these things also stops you from trading what might end up being like a really valuable first round pick now for Jakob Pertl to the San Antonio Spurs. Like essentially what Masai Ujiri did was punted on the 2024 draft class because, you know, like I've been saying, like people, you know, who cover the draft have been saying for at least a year and a half now, the 2024 draft does not seem very good. It's not a strong draft at the top in terms of high upside value. The Raptors have a chance to like go get some role players and go get like, if they evaluate well, they can go get guys that will be NBA players in this draft for sure. Like these aren't valueless picks by any stretch, but I don't find it wildly likely that they're going to find their next star And now they remain in this weird liminal space where honestly, like there's a real case for them to still try and make the play in and have that pick transfer over to San Antonio this year so that you keep your, you know, high pick for 2025, potentially if your team isn't very good in 2025. And then like, also not get your pick this year while you're in the middle of a rebuild in some way. Like it becomes a very complicated, convoluted conversation and it's all because of how they've handled the ending here of this Raptors title team. And I, you know, I I think that uh, at the end of the day, I think they handled it incorrectly, I think is the most reasonable way to say it. Yeah, no, I agree. I know failure was definitely a harsh way to put it, but um, I think exactly like you're saying, like it's just, um, you know, getting the opportunity to, to, and this team has been good at evaluating talent. So like, I'm not questioning that, but again, it's all the opportunity costs of like, okay, well, I'm excited about if I trade Gary Trent and I have the opportunity to maybe get a few guys who can become better in that role with, with picks 
when it, when it's trading Pascal Siakam and these are like the that, those are the picks coming back. It just you know it's it's the same point, but yeah, um, we definitely view it in the same light. What do you think of this roster now moving forward? So they are led by Scotty Barnes, Emmanuel Quickly, R.J. Barrett, Jakob Pertl. Uh Bruce Brown is on this roster. Uh, Kyra Lewis, Jordan Wara, Dennis Schroeder, Gary Trent Jr. is still here. What What do you think this roster is capable of in the near term? Let's start there. In the near term, I, I don't view them as like a real playoff threat unless some massive stuff happens. Um, like I think, you know, like there, there are good pieces here. Like obviously I think to me, when I just look at these past few trades together, the biggest thing for me is Emmanuel quickly. Like Emmanuel quickly has proven what he can do. He's established. And more importantly, I think like, as we've already seen to a degree in Toronto, like he, we've known that there's more for him to do on the table in a bigger role. And I think to me, it's all about expanding that alongside Scotty. Like that is, that is the basis here. Like figure out what you have here, because I think so much of what's been awesome about this year, the the, the big thing to me, like what makes this year so important already is, is the growth that Scotty's shown. Like for him to get to this point as a shooter, you've talked about on the show a ton um, for him to be here. Like, I think we're talking much more feasibly about a guy who can carry that much more of an offense. And when you get a guy like Emmanuel quickly, that is like as good of a one that, as you can pair with him in terms of stylistic, um, having that kind of style, having a guy who can be so good off ball, but also run lineups and, and, and be a quality defender. Like that's awesome. But again, like you were thinking up and down, obviously RJ has been tremendous in Toronto. It feels like every single game has been a good game room, except for one. Um, obviously an important develop developmental bet. Like how can he keep growing? What does that look like in a new system? I've been impressed so far. I want to see what that keeps looking like, but um Again, like you're talking about a group that is probably winning like 32 to 36 games, depending on what the vets are around them. Like, I don't think that, especially when you talk about like Indiana being a group that was in a tier slightly above their, you know, they're expanding, going even higher now. Um, the Knicks obviously took what they hope to be a step forward, adding OG. Um, you have Miami, you have Cleveland, like there's still quite a quite a bit farther down from everyone else. And I guess, you know, it depends on the immediate future, but I still think even next year, I don't view them as as like like if they make a play in, I don't think that would be surprising. But being like a real legit playoff team next year would be pretty surprising to me. Yeah. So the reason I asked about the short term is because, you know, the Spurs get their pick if it's outside of the top six. Right. Uh, that That's a really, really important point here. Trying to figure out if they're going to be able to maintain that selection or not. And if they want to, like, frankly, I don't know where the Raptors sit on that. Like I, I know what I would want to do, but like, I would want that pick to transfer this year over to the Spurs, but I, I don't know how I feel about that uh, or how they feel about that. Maybe the other side of it in terms of the long-term piece here let's say shorter long-term, so maybe next two years, they would really need Emmanuel Quickly to be a dude, I think, to make that next step. And I love Emmanuel Quickly. I think there is a chance he is like a very significant dude. When we did the breakdown with John Macri on the OG and Anobi deal, 
I called that straight up. Like, I think that is the Emmanuel quickly deal as much as it is the Ananobi deal. And I think Emmanuel quickly's upside is enormous. I think that he is a perfect fit with Scotty Barnes. I would want to see those two play together at a really high level and just let those two rock and see what happens at the end of the year here. If you lose games, that's cool. If not, you know, probably helps your objectives as well. Right. Like that's fine. Uh, the Raptors generally are a team that have not wanted to like fall all the way back, right? They're a team that tries to stay competitive in general. So I think they're going to let like Scotty and Emmanuel quickly and those guys rock a little bit. And then if it really turns here over the course of the next couple of months, you know, we saw when they were in Tampa and that was a totally different situation. They're away from home, everything like that, that maybe they will be willing to, you know, lose some games late in the year and see what happens. They might naturally lose games. The other piece of this that's hard though, is that they are firmly in the play-in race, even at what are they 15 and 23 right now? Is that the right record? Um, uh, yeah. 15 and 25, I believe 15 and 25, even if, even at 15 and 25, the bottom of the East is such a trash fire Yeah, from nine to 15 that they are firmly in the play in picture still. Yeah. Like it's like not even almost seven question. games up on Charlotte right now. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. like you look at the play in picture right now, I believe that they are in 11th. Is that right? They're 12th just behind Atlanta and uh, yeah, so Atlanta and Brooklyn are tied. They're 12th behind Atlanta. Atlanta and Brooklyn are tied. Brooklyn is in 10th, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. uh, at 16 and 23. Yep. They have like the very slight, you know, whatever a tiebreaker is at 39 games into the season. And then even Chicago is still only 19 and 23, and they're in ninth. So if Toronto is able to like pull off some wins here moving forward, that's like a very distinct possibility that they can still make the play in. Again, like for that, for the Raptors, I think the goal here is just to like, not be one of the bottom six teams. They are currently, I think the sixth worst team in the league. Uh, If you look at the bottom of the league right now, the Spurs are seven and 32. I don't think that they get to the Spurs level. The wizards are seven and 32. I don't think they get to the wizards level. The Pistons are four and 36. I mean, God love the Raptors. If they get to the Pistons level, Jesus, uh, the Blazers are 10 and 29. So they're four and a half games up on the Blazers. That is what? Four teams right there. Fifth is the Grizzlies. They're currently tied with the Grizzlies at 15 and 25. Kind of a similar boat to the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies are much more injured than they are though. Desmond Bain is going to miss some time. Marcus Smart is going to miss some time. Uh, the Grizzlies do like to be competitive in the same boat that the Raptors are. So, could be a circumstance where it's Toronto and Memphis vying for something in that range. And then the other team that I didn't mention are the Hornets. They're eight and 29. I can't imagine the Raptors being as bad as the Hornets have been um, the rest of the way, just because, you know, there's seven games up on the Hornets already, or maybe like six games up or something. Mm-hmm. So I think they have a good chance to like get outside of that. Certainly. I think they will be outside of the bottom five at least. And it's kind of going to come down to like Memphis and Toronto, like which one wants to tank more and then like lottery odds kind of thing. Yeah. 
No, definitely. And that's just a quick aside, too. It is uh, the the Grizzlies season has been jarring, man. I never thought I would see a team as banged up as that. I think it was 20. It would have been 2017-18 because it was the year that they had Tyreek Evans because 2018-19 was when Tyreek was in Indiana. But like that, I never thought I'd see a team as banged up as that Grizzlies team because that was a team that went 25 deep that season because of how many two ways they had to sign. And this is shaping up to be just as bad, which is just insane. Um, but yeah, point being, like I, there, I, I would, it would take to drop seven games with forty games remaining. That's like you are winning less than ten games the rest of the year. Like that is yeah. a lot. And look, like this team might be a. This could be like a, oh man, ten and thirty stuff because that's like a that's like a twenty one win pace. I don't think this team is that bad with how good Scotty is now. Agreed. Like, I, I think that with Scotty, I've generally liked what I've seen from Darko this year. Like I wouldn't say that he looks like a real like difference maker, like, like Will Hardy. When I watch Will Hardy, I'm like, okay, this is like a dude is a coach. I don't know if I think that Darko is quite that based off of what I've seen, but like not, I wouldn't rule it out necessarily either. Uh, and part of this is going to be dependent upon what the next steps are with the Raptors yep. too. So let's talk about that. Next steps for the Raptors. We've kind of talked about Bruce Brown. Whether or not they keep Bruce Brown or not is an interesting discussion. I think they could get a first round pick for him. Like if you're Oklahoma City and you have this enormous Davis Bertans contract, that you can use to match this very easily. And you have this enormous cache of picks. That's like a, that's a deal that makes a lot of sense to me for them. Uh, if you don't want to trust like case and Wallace, if you want a different option other than Isaiah Joe, if you want a different option other than Lou Dort, uh, you want like a bench ball handler option. In addition to Josh Giddy, like having an experienced playoff guy in Bruce Brown seems valuable to me for Oklahoma city seems valuable to me for Philadelphia seems valuable to me for, you know, like Sacramento honestly could really use somebody like Bruce Brown. I think the yeah. Knicks could really use somebody like Bruce Brown. Uh, if they decided they wanted to move, you know, you know, it's like an interesting kind of deal that I don't know if I would do if I was New York, but given that Fred Katz just reported like, Quentin Grimes general levels of unhappiness. What if you did like Fournier and Quentin Grimes for Bruce Brown? Uh, I don't hate it. I think it just kind of brings up some of the same problems. Like how can he and Josh Hart ever touch the floor together in like meaningful moments? Yeah. Cause that's already been an issue with Josh Hart and, and OG playing together. Like not that, and not it, to make it like unkind of Josh, like he's a good player, but I think you just look at some of the issues. Um, but. Well, it's been it's been an issue for Dante and uh, Grimes as well. Like, do you yeah. do you trust playing Dante and uh, Bruce Brown together? I, I don't yeah. know the answer to that one either. So maybe New York's not as good, but like the Lakers, you could potentially do Dallas. I think could really use them. Golden State, like that's a guy that would really help Golden State's defense right now. I don't know, like if there's a you know maybe you do something like Chris Paul, you know and you know, a pick or something. I'm just like throwing shit at the wall at this point, but like Bruce Brown helps them quite a bit. I think Bruce Brown helps a significant amount of teams in the playoff picture right now. If you have a mechanism to get to $22 million from a trade perspective, 
getting Bruce Brown is like a win for you. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, like even Dallas adding any kind of adding Bruce would be cool. Um, like I think, you know, when you talk about like looking at some of the other teams, um, like, okay, so you would be so interesting to me because I just have no idea how to think about what they're going to approach with this or like how they want to approach it. Um, yeah. because like, I mean, exactly like you're mentioning like, okay, cool. Well, I love Aaron Wiggins. Um, I, I love all like pretty much every player on that roster, but like, okay, so you're taking all those minutes and saying, here's 20 minutes of Bruce Brown, maybe a little bit more. Like that's a huge upgrade. Same thing for the Kings. I think the Kings are just like that. That one actually probably makes the most sense to me. But then again, it even becomes the same thing of like, all right, well, the Kings really need somebody who's like six, six or six, seven. But like even then, like adding Bruce would be huge for them. Um, yeah, there's a lot of teams should look into him. Even like Milwaukee is the team that I would be most interested to see if they even poke around on it. I just don't think they have the stuff to actually make it happen. Yeah, they, they just unfortunately like don't have a mechanism to be able to do that. I don't think like. Another team, I mean, Bruce Brown would be awesome in Miami. Yeah, he's like a very he, he Miami be, player. He'd be so fantastic there. And by the way, like the Heat have this Kyle Lowry expiring contract. Like that's an interesting like homecoming kind of deal that you could theoretically think about. Um, you know, th- there's just a lot of different options here, I think, yeah. for the Raptors to be able to explore, at least for Bruce Brown. But if they decide not to trade Bruce Brown, the other piece of it is that Bruce Brown has a lot of value taking him like up to the draft or like, you know, up until like June 30th or whatever his date is when you have to make a decision on his team option. I can look that up while we're talking. Uh, They have like a lot of cap space potentially next year. So it's not a matter of flexibility for them. It's more a matter of, is there a team out there that really wants Bruce Brown potentially next off season and doesn't have a great mechanism maybe to acquire him in free agency? Is a team like that going to be willing to trade you something for Bruce Brown in order to acquire him because they can't do it otherwise. And now you have all of this draft capital as well. It's actually like a pretty interesting and valuable contract to take into the offseason as well from a flexibility perspective. But ultimately, like if you get a deal now that you like and feel comfortable with, I do think I would just move him at the end yeah. of the day. No, the other guys, yeah, and Bruce Brown, for what it's worth, his deadline is uh, two days after the draft next year. So June 29th. So they, they would be able to take him through the draft if they want to. Uh, the other guys here that like, I wonder if it comes up. Jakob Pertl, uh, you know, has four years left on his deal. I don't know how interested teams will be just given the length of his deal, but he's been quite good this year. I think like he has been valuable on defense. I think that he does a really good job being able to play uh, within any sort of kind of ball screen action they often play him in drop like i think he's a quite good defender uh you could look at somebody like gary trent on an expiring deal as well i think he could probably help a few teams i'm not totally sure who else here stands out though maybe dennis schroeder schroeder was useful for the lakers last year i think there are at least a few 
options here that they could decide to move on from if they decide they want to like really take a step back. And if they decide that getting rid of the vets would be one place. Yeah. I think like you mentioned, I think figuring out how to move Jakob would be fascinating. Cause I just don't know what that looks like. Like, like you mentioned, I think he's a productive um, and useful player, but like he and Scotty have just not worked together. Um, like that has been really difficult as an offensive pairing um, and he does good things defensively, but it's just like, again, the entire fit altogether is so awkward um, that I don't entirely like I, I just don't know how to wrap my head around a team taking on that contract and what they're going to do with that. Um, but well, like the, the problem there is that you look around the league right now, all of the bigs that like theoretically could be available at the deadline. Like for instance, like Daniel Gafford, right? Daniel Gafford, I think is not as good as Jakob Pertl. I think Jakob Pertl is a better player, but Daniel Gafford is making 13 million versus 20 million. And if you're somebody like Dallas, for instance, and you want to continue developing Derek lively over the course of the next two or three years, and you want to pair him with somebody, I think you'd probably rather prefer to pair him with Gafford as like a potential like starter backup situation one way or the other, because Gafford's just like a little bit cheaper at the end of the day. 100%. So I'm not totally sure what to, what to think of that yet. Like, I, I don't know what to think like Jakob Pertl's value would be uh, at the deadline. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about because I like like you mentioned, I think every team I think of that could use a center, especially more size. Like I think the Pelicans are a team that I would love to see get an upgrade at the backup center position. Um, but like, again, Jakob is not a backup center right now monetarily. So that's yeah. pretty much impossible to do. Um, and like like Clint Capella, right? Clint Capella is probably like, you know, he, he's nearing the point where like backup might make more sense for him uh, as a role, but he only has one year left at 20 million. So if you really want a great backup center, if you're Dallas, for instance, like let's just say Dallas, right? Uh, you have Derek Lively and you feel like he's definitely your center of the future, but you want somebody who can pair with him long term or like pair with him as he continues to develop paying Clint Capella for one more year at 20 million makes a lot more sense than paying Jakob Pertl four more years or three more years at 20 million. Yeah. It's so, a lot more palatable. Yeah. That that's the, the Pertl deal from a structural perspective, never made a lot of sense to me as a trade. Uh, it, it really does not make sense now. So th- that's where Toronto is. Toronto's in a very complicated, difficult position, I think to try and navigate. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be fascinated to see how they how they deal with it because there's just there are so few options that it feels like there's a lot. If that makes sense, like it's just it it's mm-hmm. puzzling to look at. I think is a better way to put it. So it's like I'm just kind of going to be interested to see what direction they try and go in. Well, and as you bring that up, they do have at least they think, uh, and, and honestly, like I think so to an extent as well. They have the most important piece of it, which is you have Scotty Barnes, who at the very least is an all-star-ish caliber player, let's say, uh, already. He, he might make the all-star team. He might not. Like, how would you uh, – I'll look through all-stars, like, while we're talking in the East, just to, like, kind of make a list. But, like, he he 
could theoretically be on a piece of the all-star you know team near the end of that roster wouldn't stun me but long term like he is an all-star it's just whether or not he can be a top five guy in the league I think that upside exists. I, I kind of refuse to put a ceiling on Scotty at this point. He continues to get better, continues to figure things out in such a real substantial way. They have a guy that like you can reasonably say might be that guy long-term, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have an answer to that, but might be. That's the most important thing. You have a second guy in Emmanuel quickly who I think like if you told me he made an all-star game, like Fred Van Vliet made an all-star game in Toronto, that wouldn't totally surprise me. I don't know if he's going to quite like reach the level of multi-time all-star and like all NBA guy, but I think that he has the ceiling to make like an all-star game long-term and be a top 12 point guard longer term in the NBA. Beyond that, I don't really know where they're going here. I think that Grady Dick, like I would love to see Grady Dick get minutes. I know it's been a rough go so far in the G League, but like just put him out there and see what happens. Like there's no reason not to at this point, especially late in the year. Maybe not like immediately, but maybe late in the year. Let's just kind of roll with it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah, I'm not not, not totally sure where the Raptors go from here, but that that seems like their core long-term trio – and then RJ Barrett as well, man. Like, I guess they have RJ for three more years after this one too. Like, what do you, man, like, I'm like trying to figure this out. Like, what do you think of RJ's fit there now? Um, I've loved his fit so far, honestly. Like that, that's one of the things that's been fun with Darko. I think like part of what's hard with a rookie head coach in this setting is like, I, I'm with you. Like, I don't entirely know what to make of Darko yet, but I, I like some of the things he's done to maximize individuals and, um, Part of it's just RJ has been playing well, but I feel like they've done a good job of empowering him so far and, and um, finding ways to utilize him. Um, but again, like I feel like it's hard to kind of evaluate him in the whole roster until we get like a real look at um, it being kind of competent in the same direction. Um, but I, I mean, I think RJ is like when you look at what his contract is, I feel like you kind of have to mention him as part of the core right now if that makes yeah. sense. But, um, and he's played like it. So I, I don't know it, this is, this is already encroaching upon one of the best stretches that he's had consistency wise. Um, yeah. So I don't know. We will see what happens. Averaging 20 points, uh, seven rebounds, three assists on 56, 44, 76. The two point uh, shooting has his... been like the craziest part. Like he has been so efficient and just making good decisions inside the arc. Well, what I think, I think there's that. And I think that they've done a better job of limiting his role a little bit where like, it's a lot like, I think he's better in transition, obviously. And they've empowered him in that way because Toronto is always, obviously like always tried to like get up and go. I think you're right about like the better decision-making around the basket for RJ. That's been valuable and useful. Yeah, like I think he's been better. Like I think I think like he's probably being given like the sounds like I'm talking shit like about Tibbs and I actually don't mean it this way. Like I think he's probably being given like more simple instructions just like hey, like go score. Right? Like go get a bucket and like go it, it just feels a little bit easier for him to manage. Like he feels like he's just going out there reacting to what's happening around him and hooping a little bit. Uh whereas Tibbs is, you know, 
often telling people like 60 different things, which is why I think Tibbs can get a little bit frustrating for players um, if you don't have that kind of mentality. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Okay. Uh, Last thing I want to talk about here on this deal. Do we think this has any wide ranging impacts kind of league wide at the deadline? Does this affect anything for any other teams at the deadline? Um, I think, I mean, we've already seen it play out a little bit, but I do think that this makes an impact for the Kings. Um, obviously they were interested in this. I do like to, to be fair. Like I think with the Kings, they've been, obviously they just had another really frustrating loss last night after being up pretty huge on the Suns. Um, but I think still with that team, like they've shown good things. It's about kind of hitting that next stage in year two of them actually being a competent organization and continuing to do that. Like, what does that look like for them? Cause I do think that they need to make something happen. Not that it has to be the big move, but clearly they're a team that's trying to find an upgrade. Does, what does that mean for them? Cause I do think like they are kind of the team that is um, most in line for that, them or golden state. Um, so I think yeah. for me, it's just going to be, what does that look like? Also, if you're golden state, who are you adding that? Like, really, like I've been yeah. on the, this season's kind of saying over is a lot, but I I've been kind of just done with with Golden State on that level for a couple of weeks now. But I think this really puts the nail in the coffin for that. Like if you can make the deal happen for Pascal, who are you getting that elevates this team like that? I don't think that there's a deal out there. I I don't think the season's over for Golden State. Well, oh, okay, over is a is a I, lot, but in terms of like being a team that is able to like really be a legit contender in the playoffs. I don't like, I just think it's asking a lot for them to, to come back. And like, yes, they had that one, that play and run, but okay. It's a very different clay. It's a very different everything. Like it just, I, I don't know. So my thing is like the opportunity cost of this all, right? Like who are they going to go get? Like I, I, who's on the market that is a genuine difference maker for them. Like, Bruce Brown, like, could, could you, could you convince Masai somehow to do Bruce Brown for Andrew Wiggins? Yeah. That that is the thing that like would help them immensely right now. Uh, I don't see any world where that would happen, frankly. Uh, I mean, God, like that, that seems crazy. I think the Warriors would have to add substantially that, like, could you do, I mean, this, this is an interesting one. Like there's no way the Raptors do, Wiggins and Moses Moody for Bruce Brown, like as a core trade, right? I would not do that. I'm I'm not touching the Wiggins deal with what it looks like this year. I don't think I would do that either, given how bad Wiggins has been. Like th- that's where that deal is at. Then again, though, if you're Toronto, like you have all of this cap space moving forward, you're pretty flexible books wise. If you really liked Moses Moody, that's interesting right uh yeah like yes but i also think it just gets to a weird point because it's kind of it's i mean i've tried talking about this and I, I i get that fans don't always like love hearing it but i think part of the issue and i'm not trying to absolve steve kerr of any lineups or end of game stuff but i think part of the difficulty in having a guy on that contract that's guaranteed like 
you can't just not play him or you can't just completely demote them down the rotation. Because, like, part of what's become the issue for Golden State now, like we've just talked about, who wants to take that contract? So it's like, all right, if we don't get him back on track or we don't get this back to feasible, well, shit, how are we ever moving this or how are we ever making this a positive for us or for him? Um, yeah. So I think, like, I understand Kaminga's frustrations and, like, frustrations fans have had with all that stuff, too. But to me, it's like, okay, it's a lot easier to just sit a max contract player for the final five minutes of a game in practice than it is to actually do. Yeah. I think I would not do Wiggins and Moody for Brown if I was was Toronto. I would definitely do it if I was Golden State. Golden State just needs like a shake up in some way. Yeah. And like finding any way off of that Wiggins deal is your best bet to do so. Uh, even if it costs M- Moses Moody, who I really like and still am like a big fan of long term. And I think Moody would be like a fantastic fit. I agree. To, I would love him there. Next to Emmanuel Quickly and Scotty Barnes. That's why I'm like thinking about this and I'm like, does that in any way work? I think I probably still wouldn't do it for Toronto, though. Because like that is such a hard spot to be in, huh? Um, other teams like when guys like this get traded, like you think positionally around the league, right? Uh, teams that could theoretically have been in the market for a four man like Siakam, right? Uh, now they have another option off of the table. So you know, people keep bringing up Oklahoma City. I never really thought Oklahoma City was interested right now, at least in somebody like Siakam. Yeah. I think they want to let their uh, young guys kind of rock here, maybe help them with role player pieces, but not, you know, upset the apple cart with like another star deal right now. Uh, Detroit was one team, you know, Choms certainly has brought up Detroit uh, looking for a four man at some point in the off season or at the deadline. Uh, this is another option off the plate for them, uh, along with OG and Anobi. So those options are quickly dwindling. Uh, maybe it's, you know, Tobias Harris. Maybe it's Kyle Kuzma, somebody like that. Uh, you know, trying to think of other teams that could have used like a legit four man. There aren't like a crazy crazy number of them although like another team that is worth bringing up here i think is brooklyn brooklyn is a team that we wanted to talk about a little bit today before this whole thing happened brooklyn i think is always been in the mix like any stars name that comes up uh it feels like they at least like make a inquiry about it just to like kind of find out where it sits and what the lay of the land is Mm -hmm. uh they're obviously looking for somebody like that. They feel like they have the role player pieces around, but they don't have the number one, frankly, maybe not the number two option either that they need. Now this takes another, you know, potential number one, number two option off the plate for Brooklyn as they look to try and get this thing righted. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. So I think we'll have to talk about Brooklyn again at some point, but exactly like you're hitting on, like it, just makes things murkier for some of the other teams that were hoping to find this. And I think now, like to me, because um, somebody asked in the comments, does this heat up Jeremy Grant's market? To me, yeah. I think Kyle Kuzma's next in line. Like I, I would probably prioritize Kuzma over Grant if I'm a lot of teams. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way. 
I guess oh, yeah. no, it's probably I, depend on teams for me, but I think I would probably value Kuzma a little bit more right now. Well, it's shorter deal and like a drastically better deal as yeah. well. Um, you know, again, Kuzma in 2026, 27 is going to be making like $19 million. Jeremy Grant's going to be making over 30 so at that lot. point. Like that, that is a significant amount of money. Like Jeremy Grant, I'll, I'll actually pull up the number. There's a non-zero chance Jeremy Grant is making damn close to double Kyle Kuzma's money in 2026, 27. Yeah. So Kuzma is at like 19.2 that year. Jeremy Grant is at 34.2 in 2026-27. And oh, by the way, he's a player option for 36.4. Jesus. The next year. Oh, so that is. That's a lot. That's a that's a lot for Jeremy Grant. I'll do respect to his game. Uh, M- Jeremy Grant's an interesting one. Like Kuzma, to me, you know, would be a real option for somebody. Uh, Boyan Bogdanovich would be an option for somebody. DeAndre Hunter would be an option for somebody. Uh, you know, if, if you're looking for a four, like they're out there, you can find them. Uh, not quite as good as Siakam, though. Yeah. Definitely not quite as good as Siakam. Uh, just a couple of other random questions here. Gary Trent Jr. or Chris Boucher to OKC. I don't see that. Sorry, Brandon. Like, why? I don't. I don't know what he brings to Oklahoma City that you know somebody like Isaiah Joe or you know Lou Dort doesn't. With Bruce Brown, like Bruce Brown is bringing like connectiveness and toughness and like a bunch of stuff, uh, like disruption defensively. Gary Trent's been like an okay at times defender, but he's not disruptive, at least uh, in the way that somebody like uh, Bruce Brown is. So that that doesn't really line up to me. Uh, somebody said uh, the Thunder should try and get uh, Bruce Brown and Pirtle. Maybe. Like that's a that's a big salary commitment for Pirtle. Like, if you're gonna do, if you're Oklahoma City, I don't think you do Pirtle. I think you do somebody like Daniel Gafford, or you just pay for Wendell Carter. Maybe if he comes available in the summer, yeah. somebody like that. Like that that makes a lot more sense to me. Uh, what do you see Utah doing now? Honestly, from what I know, like Utah really likes what they have going right now. As like, they should, man. Like that that is my favorite team to watch in the NBA right now. They've been great recently. Like they, they have been fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. Uh they are twenty two and twenty, ninth in the West. Uh, look, like I think that they'll certainly listen. Like they always are willing to listen, but like I, I don't I I don't see Markinen moving. I've said that on this show for months now. Uh I don't know. Like, I don't think they're enthused about moving like Jordan Clarkson. Uh, you know, I don't think they're like trying to move John Collins necessarily. Uh, if like, again, I think they'll listen and like, it's possible that something would happen there. And like, they're expiring guys like Kelly Olenek, Taylor Horton Tucker, like may- maybe some of those guys move, but yeah, if, if you told me they like stood pat, that wouldn't surprise me. Or if you told me that they lose some games here and they decide to, you know, move back in the standings wouldn't surprise me either. I think that it's pretty open right now, but I, I lean toward them being a little bit quieter. I think right now. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't, I don't really think it makes a ton of sense for them to move anybody. And like, they don't have um, some massive reason to move somebody. Like you said, I think like Collins is maybe the only guy I'd look at is like maybe being, but he's, he's been solid in Utah. I don't think that he's been yeah. like, 
outstanding or amazing. Like he's been, you know, kind of what he was last year, but still just being a productive starter. Um, I don't really see it like, cause I, again, like I know a lot of people bring up Kelly Olenek as a, as a mover, I, like maybe if they really start to lose, but he's such a big part to what they do for winning right now. So I, I don't understand why he would be on the market. Um, I agree. I don't really think that there's any reason for them to look to move anybody. If anything, they would be looking to, you know, add. And again, like there's not a star trade to be had. So I don't really know why they would be involved in any of it. Yeah. I mean, look, like the reason to move Kelly is if you feel very comfortable with Laurie Marketing, John Collins, Walker Kessler moving forward. Plus you have Taylor Hendricks as well. Like that's your four. Then maybe you say, okay, like Kelly, you know, we, we love you. We'd love to keep you but you know is your career moves forward you're a free agent and if you're kelly like i don't think you can go back there right like you're going to lose playing time moving forward so um you know like i i would probably look to move kelly but i think they're very happy with kelly so i, I don't know um mm-hmm. someone asked Schroeder trades that that's one that like i truly just have not thought about yet i, I have not gotten that far if i'm being completely transparent i uh, Teams that could use a point guard. I'm trying to think off the top of my head here. Uh, uh, the Lakers, like that, reunite them in L.A. But you know, uh, yeah, I'm looking up and down, and there's like not really anybody that I think. Like, could could the Pelicans use like a backup point? Maybe. Could could the Magic use somebody like Dennis, like as a backup point? See, the problem with Dennis, too, if he's going to – because, like, he's not the guard that Orlando needs because they already have – like, obviously, like, they have Cole, who's been really good for them off the bench, but then, like, the points were like, okay, well, we need, like, a guard who can shoot it, shoot it. So, I don't know. I don't – yeah, I don't know if I see one for him. Yeah. I I think, like, he's not been – terrible it's, yeah, no, it's like not he's a been, comment he's on solid in Toronto. i don't mean anything yeah. I just think when you're talking about what the contract is and what other teams need i don't know if there's one for him there, there probably is like to, to be honest like there probably is because th- thinking about this like he's on 12 million and 13 million the way he's played this year the way he played for germany in the world cup that's a fine deal like there's nothing wrong with that contract if somebody wants a backup point, like you could, or like even like a low end starting point, you could probably do worse, I guess. It's just, it'll depend on that. That feels like one that would get done near the deadline when teams like start running out of like other options that could be available, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Mark, uh, we had plans to do so many other things today, but we're not going to get to them because we've talked for an hour 20 and this Pascal Siakam deal happened. Mark, tell the people where they can find your work, tell the people what's going on um, and everything else that you want to let them know. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, as always, appreciate you having me on, man. It's always a blast. We'll have to do it again sometime soon. Um, yeah. yeah, you can find me. Everything I do is over at seven star digital, primarily at bettinghouse.com right now. Uh, we'll have all meanings of, of things coming up. Um, there are, yeah, there's so many things going on in basketball right now. It's kind of hard to keep up with everything, but to my best, I have like four things going on tomorrow that'll all be publicized. Um, so yeah, stay on the lookout. Go follow Mark at MG underscore Schindler on Twitter. Uh, I had rookie rankings coming tomorrow. 
I don't know that they're coming tomorrow now because of this. Uh, this deal has obviously kind of changed some things. My guess is Monday at this point for rookie rankings, but I'm not 100% sure. I swear they're written like I've done them all. Uh, they, they exist. Uh, I wrote about Vic, Hawkes, Brandon Pajemski, and Cam Whitmore. So you can go to The Athletic and read that whenever it comes out. <laughs> I don't have an answer there yet. I'm sorry, guys. I will have something coming on the Siakam deal for sure. That is a no question, no doubter situation. That will happen. What else? Uh, yeah, keep it locked here. We'll, we'll have awards at some point next week. Uh, breaking down everything that's happening uh, and talking about where I'd sit with my midseason awards because next week, officially, I believe every team will have played 41 games. Uh, we've had a couple, I think, that are up at even like 42, if I remember correctly. I know Denver's at 41. I think Utah's at like 42 right now. Yeah. So they're past the halfway point. But there are uh, there are some real... Uh, fun award things to go through. So I'll try and grab somebody uh, on the NBA side to come through, talk awards midseason. Uh, and that's all I've got. So until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.